0: We're going to talk tonight, like I said, about the issue of what does it mean to be an adopted son of God. Next week, we're going to talk about assurance. How do you know you're a Christian? Romans 8 is one of the best places to to really get into that question, and it's also one of the best places to talk about adoption between this and the book of Galatians, and there's a quick reference in Ephesians as well. Um, Those are some of the principal places where we talk about the doctrine of adoption. It's super important. So let's start out with reading our passage. I'm going to start at verse 8 of Romans chapter 8. Yeah, and uh, and then we're going to dig into this. Everybody there? Romans 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, than heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Then not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." We pray. Lord, we do thank you. It's a glorious passage. Lord, we could take all year and not get uh, even beyond the surface of all the rich truth that you have for us. But we pray, Lord, that you would send that spirit, that spirit of adoption tonight to assure us that if we are yours, that we are your children, and that these things are true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, uh, J.I. Packer, who you may not know him, but he is one of the most important theologians in the English-speaking world of the 20th century. Um, His book, Knowing God, sold over a million copies. He was the editor of Christianity Today for many years. Um, Really one of the most important Christian authors. And in his book, Knowing God, he has a wonderful chapter on this topic of what does it mean to be an adopted child of God. It's called the Sons of God. And here's the way he puts it. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all that's a very strong statement but i believe it can be backed up from the passage that we read from galatians what does it say at just the right time god sent his son born of a woman so that he might redeem us so that so that so that we might be adopted as sons and then what's the next verse and because we are sons he sent the Spirit. Well, Romans 8 says talks about heirs, but Galatians says because we are sons, which is the apex of what he does for us in salvation, doesn't just make us his friends in justification, he makes us his children in adoption. Because of that, he sends the Spirit so that we would feel like sons. And I tell you what, if you understand that, you have gone a long way to understanding what makes Christianity so special and so powerful. There was nothing like this in the ancient world. It's this teaching that you could have secure experience of the love of God, not based on what you did or how well you lived your life, but based upon God's grace, that you could actually know that and experience it. Change the world, and it still has the power to change the world. Now, you need to understand adoption in the first century Roman context, because unless you understand a little bit about Roman adoption, you may not understand why is it that Paul says that we've been adopted as sons, and he doesn't say sons and daughters. So adoption is mentioned in the New Testament, in five different places, three different letters, Ephesians, Galatians, and then three places in Romans. Every one of these places where Paul talks about adoption are places that had significant Roman influence. And and Paul finds in the Roman adoption laws in particular a fitting picture of the status and privilege that Jesus has brought his people. You see, adoption was not part of the ancient Jewish law, and it, 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 the Greeks had an idea of adoption, but it's nothing like the Roman idea. There's what um, this guy, Francis Lyle, who wrote an entire book on the Roman ideas of adoption law, says this, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All of his old debts were instantly canceled, and in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of this new family. What's interesting about the Roman adoption is usually you did it for an adult, not a little child and you brought somebody into your family to make them your heir, and it gave them tremendous status and privilege, right? On the one hand, the new father owned all the new offspring's property and controlled his personal relationships and had the rights of discipline. But on the other hand, the new father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. There's something else that's important to understand about Roman adoption. Adopted sons could not be disinherited, but natural-born sons could be. You could not disinherit your adopted son, but you could disinherit your natural-born son. Actually, when we adopted our daughter from China, May, we had to sign a statement that we would not disinherit her. I'll just tell you, nobody made me sign that for my two sons. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful to remind them of that. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. They're good kids. But, it, but it's true. There, we had to take a vow, basically, that we would never disinherit our adopted child before they would give her to us. Okay, So Paul uses this word sons because daughters did not have this security and status in Roman law. But he does something here I think you need to see. He actually deconstructs the chauvinistic Roman culture by applying this term sons to all believers, giving women a status in the Christian world that they did not have in the society. Sons is applied to men and women. In Christ, women were never to be seen as second-class citizens, and that was radical and countercultural. But here's the thing. Men have to learn what it means to be the bride of Christ, and women have to learn what it means to be a son of God. In other words, you can't even let your gender be the determining factor for how you understand God. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but sons and brides, that's who we are. So kind of put that together and, and think about that all right so adoption a few other things we need to say to understand adoption adoption is something that happens to you no one is by nature a son of god i know the social gospel late 19th century early 20th century talked about the universal fatherhood of god the bible doesn't talk about that the bible nowhere says that god is the father of all mankind adoption is a privilege that comes with redemption it's a privilege of redemption he takes people, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, people who are by nature children of wrath, and he makes them his children. And adoption is bigger even than justification. We've talked about justification, right? The idea that in God's sight, because of Jesus living in your place and dying in your place, you are now seen not just as forgiven, but as beautiful in his sight, righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ, You don't just have a clean slate and a fresh chance to try to impress God. That's justification. It's not just as if I never sinned. It's way better than that. It's just as if I lived and loved like Jesus did. That's the status you get in justification, right? You who were his enemies have now been made his friend. He sees you as one who's done everything he requires. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, loving your neighbors, yourselves, He sees you as one who's done that because that's what Jesus did. And if you're in union with Christ, you get credit for what he did, okay? But adoption's even better. That's what's remarkable. Adoption is even better. You're not just made God's friend. You have been brought into the very family of God. But do we get it? Because I think it's true to say that for so many of us, we hear that, we might even say, yes, I believe that, we might get that question right on our theology exam if you take Christian doctrine, but do you really live out of that? Do we really approach God as a welcoming father or as a disappointed boss? Does his smile give us boldness and humility Are we full of deep insecurity, wondering if we've done enough to secure his love? It's an important question. Sometimes people even refuse sonship, refuse to embrace it. And you might think, well, that seems kind of strange. But Jesus told a parable about this. The parable of the prodigal son is really the parable of the two lost sons. Oh, we know about the prodigal who goes and wastes his money, at least in the language of the older son, wastes his money on riotous living. Whether that's slander or whether that's true, we don't know. But regardless, the younger son said to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And then he goes off and he breaks, ruptures this relationship. But eventually he gets so miserable that he makes a plan. Is he's there in the pig pen, wanting to eat the food that the pigs were fed, which is pretty low if you're a Jewish boy, right? Because the Jews aren't really into pigs, right? And you certainly wouldn't want to eat pig food, right? So that's pretty, that's pretty astonishing picture that Jesus paints there. But what does the son do? He says, you know what? He starts thinking to himself, in my father's place, there are lots, there's lots of food. And I'm going to go back with a plan to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. And then what? Make me like one of your hired men. In other words, I'm going to throw myself on your mercy, but I'm still going to make a demand. I no longer want to come to you as a son. I want to have not a father-son relationship, but a boss-employee relationship. And I want to earn my way back into your good graces. And you might say why would anybody want that you know why because it feels like you're in control see it's one thing to trust fully in god's grace but there's a little bit of 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 riskiness to it this is why martin luther said that faith saving faith is a living daring hope in god and sometimes that sounds good but it also sounds a little scary and a little risky and we'd rather be able to say to god well look at what i've done Because that seems tangible, and that seems measurable, and that seems like something that I can point to to know where I stand with God rather than completely trusting his grace, right? This is the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, what the prodigal does is what we all do. We all come in and say, I don't feel worthy. I don't want a father-son relationship with God. I want a boss-employee relationship. That's all I ask, and it sounds so humble, doesn't it? Just give me a chance. Let me try to clean up my life. Let me work off my debt. I'm not asking for a lot. Just give me my daily bread. When the prodigal comes to the father and says, let me be your servant, what he's really saying is, I don't believe you're good enough to make me your son. This is not humility. It's an insult. He's saying, Father, I don't believe you are wealthy enough or generous enough to make me your son. When you refuse to live as a son and you live as a hired servant, it looks like humility, but in reality, it is an insult. You don't believe he's rich or generous. I heard Keller give this story one time about um, a a guy who was in the court of Alexander the Great, and his daughter was going to be married, and so he came to Alexander to ask for money to be able to throw this great party and ask for like an insane amount of money. And Alexander smiled and gave it to him. And after the guy walked out, one of the, one of the other guys comes up and he's like, w- like, why did you give him that money? Like, that was like, insulting. I expected you to, like, send him to the dungeon or whatever. And, and what Alexander says, oh, you don't understand. He honored me greatly. Because in asking for such a sum... He demonstrated it, that he believed I was fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous. What do we demonstrate by the way we ask things of God? Do we believe that he's incredibly wealthy and fabulously generous? Or do we say, God, just give me a little, a little morsel, a little crumb from your table. Sons of God come boldly before the throne as the book of Hebrews says we can. Well, how do we do that? Well, that's what the Spirit's for. So God gives us the status because of the work that Jesus has done. But then he sends the Spirit so that we would feel and enjoy the status. God has given the Spirit to convince you that if you're a Christian, you really are an adopted son of God. That's the point that Paul is making in Galatians, what we read for the call to worship. It's the point he's making here. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Man, it's so tragic that people think the main point of the Spirit is to do all these spectacular signs and wonders, and they miss this. This is the main thing the Spirit is to do. And this is the main thing the Spirit did for Jesus. It is. This is the principal work of the Spirit in the life of a believer, to make you believe that Romans 8 is actually true. And he says here that all Christians have the Spirit. Oh, I pray that you would excise from your vocabulary this distinction between Christians and Spirit-filled Christians. All Christians are Spirit-filled. And anybody that believes otherwise, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because this is absolutely vital to understand. The Spirit of God was given that we would enjoy and know that we are sons of God. So what does it feel like? I, the best way I know to explain it is what the Puritans called God's kisses. And, and they were careful to say sometimes God gives us an overwhelming sense of His love. Thomas Manton, sorry, Thomas good, Goodwin, one of the old Puritans, Thomas Manton was another one, they're all good ones. But um, Thomas Goodwin put it this way. Listen to this picture. I love this. It says, picture a man walking along the road with his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father. The boy knows the man is his father and that his father loves him. But all of a sudden, the man sweeps the boy up into his arms, embraces him and kisses him. Now, the boy is actually no more a son when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. His status hasn't changed at all. The Father's action has not changed the status of the Son, but oh, the difference in the enjoyment of the status. And the status, enjoying the status, often comes in the middle of the groaning. So it's an overwhelming manifestation of God's love, God's kisses, but it's also the spirit of adoption, what does it feel like? It's a freedom to cry, Abba, in the midst of all the groaning. Look at the word he uses in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but if you've received the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, cry, It's a word of profound passion and feeling. It's actually the word Jesus used in the garden when he cried out to his father. In teaching us to cry, Abba, in the midst of the groaning, don't you see, God is teaching us and shaping us to be more like Jesus. It's baby talk. It really is. It's intimate baby talk. Groaning and sonship go together. They did for Jesus, and they do for all of his adopted children. But the Spirit is the sovereign Spirit. He's not at our beck and call. We can't control him or demand the experience. That's why I like the way the Puritans referred to it as God's kisses. William uh, Cooper, the great hymn writer, put it this way. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings, it is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. and I love that, that hymn says sometimes, because too many modern songs leave out the sometimes and then lie about what the Christian life feels like. It doesn't always feel like God's kisses, but sometimes it does. You know this, if you've ever sung that hymn, Cornerstone, or the the traditional version, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. You know that line? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. A sweet frame is the experience of God's kisses. We don't despise them, but we don't trust in them. God gives them at times when he feels that we really need them. But we always have the status, right? Right? We always have the status. Now, what's interesting is the connection between the status, the son, or the spirit of sonship being given us to feel the status, and the way that equips and energizes us to fight against sin. Because here, in the midst of all this stuff about being a son of God, he talks about the importance of putting sin to death The Puritans used this wonderful word, they called it mortification, to mortify, meant to kill something, to to put it to death at the root. And the spirit of sonship does this by dealing with the poison that's driving our sin and rebellion, the suspicion that God has not been good to us. I've said it before, again, this Spurgeon quote, I think, Summarizes this so well. He says, When I thought that God was a tyrant, I thought my sin was a trifle. No big deal. But when I understood him to be my loving father, I smote my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one like that. I know that you think that the best way to try to fight sin is to convince yourself that God is mad at you. It's not. The way to fight against sin is to be healed of the poison that's driving your suspicion about God and his love. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Look at the way he talks about it here, right? It really brings together the whole chapter. There is now, he says no condemnation because of what Jesus did, living and dying in our place. That's the first four verses of Romans 8, setting us free from slavery. That's verses 5 through 12, and then giving us his spirit to convince us that we really are fully accepted as sons. To do battle with sin by the spirit. This is what he said, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To do battle with sin by the Spirit is to obey the Spirit's words, the Scripture, to believe the Spirit's testimony that we are sons, and to cry out for his help, knowing that he is committed to fully changing us. The Spirit is committed to making us believe the gospel and live the gospel. So don't give up. And there's one more thing. If we are sons, we are also heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Now we're going to talk more about the groaning, okay? But just just see this last thing, verses 17 and 18. I think we don't spend enough time reflecting on the hugeness of what God has done for us in the gospel. And when we lose sight of what Paul is saying here, we are vulnerable to being tempted to doubt God's goodness when what we really need is a longer-term perspective on things. In other words, we think of our salvation too small in this way. We tend to think of it primarily in terms of what we're saved from, and relatively less often do we think of what we're saved to. In other words, you probably think more about how you've been rescued from hell than what you've been rescued to. How often do you think about being a co-heir with Christ, for instance? Right? To be a co-heir means that everything Christ inherits, you inherit. He earned it, and you get it because you're in him. And it's not just getting mansions or streets of gold. It's about sharing in the glory. Look at this. We don't just see the glory. We actually get to partake of it. Look at verse 18, I do not consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We get to partake in the glory that's coming. But it's important to understand that suffering and glory are married. Notice what he says here. I do not consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. It doesn't mean that the sufferings of this life are, are not real, powerful, and awful. But if you consider, if you sit down and weigh in the balance, the future glory with the present suffering, there's no comparison. They're married, right? One of the old Puritans, John Trapp, said, one son God had with no sin, but none without sorrow. One son God had without sin, but none without sorrow. Hebrews 12 says, it's one of the signs that we're true children of God, that he disciplines those he loves. Right? Right? So suffering and glory are married. Jesus' path to glory was through a cross, and so is ours. But suffering and glory can't even be compared. He says, when you think about it, if you really consider it, if you really weigh it out, there's no comparison. And I would say we need to learn how to do this kind of gospel reasoning. Because nothing else can lead you to say what Paul says here. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's been revealed to us. The only way you say that is if you've really taken stock and you've thought about and focused on and set your mind on the glory that is to be revealed. In many ways, verse 18 is the key to the whole chapter because that kind of hope transforms your present experience. It doesn't mean the suffering goes away, but it finds its context and its proper place. Few, I think, have put it as well as Henry Light in this hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, which we haven't sung in a while. We should probably sing it again. It says this, soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. And then this. This is the consider part. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Repine basically means to just be so discouraged that you're just unable to do anything. Think what spirit dwells within you. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Consider those things. That's part of how the experience comes. You can't have very much of the experience if you really don't ever consider what God has done for you in the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord we do thank you for what you've done, and by what you continue to do. Help us to glorify you even now through singing, but most of all through believing your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.